Welcome to A Dream and a Fear. I'm your host, Max. And I'm Hugo. In this series of podcasts, we'll be diving into the lives, motivations, and legacies of some of history's greatest explorers. Welcome back to A Dream and a Fear. We have just got off a really interesting chat with Tim Geel, biographer of Henry Morton Stanley, the explorer who navigated his way across Africa in, in the 1800s. Max, do you want to summarise some of the key key points that we, we came across? Yeah, as Hugo just said, we came off a really interesting talk with uh, Tim Geel about Morton Stanley. Uh, Tim took us through some of the key moments in in Stanley's career and some of the fundamental points of his exploration in Africa and what he discovered. We also took the discussion to to statues and Morton Stanley's reputation and its links to colonialism and empire. So I think it's a really fascinating talk and very topical uh, for those of you who are interested. So I hope you enjoy. Yeah, thanks for listening, and we'll leave you in the warm embrace of Tim Geel. So we're here with Tim Geel. Tim, thank you very much for joining us on this lovely Sunday evening. Well, I'm very delighted to be with you. Brilliant. I think uh, the plan is to dive straight into it, so I'll, I'll fire away straight away. Mm, um, okay. Sta- I, I, Stanley obviously was born in 1841 in Denbyshire, interestingly, about 20 minutes away from where I grew up. And his early life in North Wales came to define and shape the man he became in later life. Can you tell us a bit about these sort of early years? Yeah, well, you're dead right. He was born in Denby. Um, He was the illegitimate son of a barmaid and an alcoholic farmhand who both abandoned him at birth, leaving him to be raised by his maternal grandfather. And John became devoted to the old man, who sadly died when the boy was five and a half. Then for a few months, John's prosperous but extremely stingy uncles boarded him out with a middle-aged couple, but suddenly stopped paying without warning, leading the couple to dump John in the local workhouse. Um, the manner this happened was particularly painful. The eldest son of the couple walked him there, saying they were going to visit his aunt. So when John was thrust through the gates of the workhouse with no word of explanation, he felt completely betrayed, and trusting people would never be easy again for him. Um, It's worth saying that to be a workhouse child in class-stratified Victorian Britain was to be burdened with a lifelong sense of shame. And the institution's harsh daily regimen was designed to discourage children from ever wishing to depend on the state again in future as adults too. Stanley wrote, it took me some time to learn the unimportance of tears in a workhouse. Hitherto, tears had brought me relief in one shape or another. When he was beaten, he fantasised about revenge and later would write that he had beaten up the master and then run away. In fact, though he'd been harshly treated and unfairly, he was the cleverest inmate of the workhouse and a model pupil. His ingrained habit of lying in order to seem strong and in control would cause him dreadful problems as an adult. But that first lie was was a really big one. When writing about African attacks, he'd often exaggerate the severity of his response in order to seem invulnerable. This would damage his moral reputation. At the workhouse, he first became obsessed with being adopted and loved by worthy parents, and individual children would be taken away from time to time and fostered. His intolerable circumstances, he was never, of course, taken away, led him to dream of reinventing himself. Why Why on earth should he accept a totally unsatisfactory existence 
if, if he could invent an alternative life. Once and only once he escaped and was taken in for one night only by an aunt and uncle in Denby, just long enough for him to witness the natural affection of an ordinary family before being returned to the loveless workhouse. No relative ever visited him except his hard-hearted mother and she only once and involuntarily when for a brief period she couldn't support herself or her children and was forced to enter the workhouse. Of all her six children, John alone was disowned by her, and for no known reason. It's possible that being confined for years in an institution later predisposed him towards the freedom of journeying in a limitless continent. Excellent, thank you. Um, uh, really interesting to hear about how harsh Stanley's early life was. Um, to move move it on a bit, uh, Stanley obviously became a journalist. Uh, sorry, before he became a journalist, he, he fought in the US Civil War, and um, it was, in fact, journalism that led him to exploration. Uh, could, you, could you tell us what made Stanley or led him to embark on the 700-mile trek in the interior of Africa? Well... He discovered when he was in, in, involved in the Civil War that he could actually write pieces about the fighting and about other aspects of war, and he managed to sell them to individual newspapers. And some of his reporting was published in Midwestern papers. Um, anyway, in 1866, when he was 25, he was briefly in England, and he read in several newspaper articles um, speculations about where precisely in Africa David Livingstone might be, and if indeed he was alive. And this was the moment when it just came to him like a blinding flash of inspiration, the idea that if he could find Livingstone in Central Africa, Livingstone was, of course, a world-famous figure. Um, he was the first person ever to have crossed, or the first white person ever to have crossed tropical Africa from coast to coast. Um, and Stanley reckoned that if he could find him, he would be made for life. Um, but, of course, there were great disadvantages and, and immense problems with his project. Um, very few men, however adventurous, would have entertained for one moment the idea of finding an elusive traveller in Central Africa. For a start, the dangers, the tropical diseases, the rainy season, a wide variety of fevers and tropical illnesses, not to mention sunstroke, starvation or attacks by wild animals. Worst of all, African travel was impossibly expensive. The tsetse fly killed oxen and horses, and so goods needed for buying food and rites of passage through chiefs' territories had to be carried by numerous porters who would have to be fed and paid. Yet so determined was Stanley from the very beginning to actually make his dream come true that he went to London, he was again, remember he's 25, and arranged to see Colonel Finlay Anderson, the New York Herald's European representative. There'd been no way... That, that he could possibly be sent to Africa, but at least um, James Gordon Bennett remembered his name and mentioned it to Gordon Bennett, the young and extremely difficult owner of the uh, New York Herald. So later, um, when um, Stanley actually got the courage to pitch it to the young millionaire, um, the idea was already in his mind and predisposed him to say yes. And we, those who know uh, Livingston or Stanley will possibly know um, know them due to the phrase of Dr. Livingston, I presume. Uh, something that you and your book has have questioned whether that was actually said. Can you can you possibly yeah. explain the yeah. sort of origins yeah. of where this myth has come from? Yes, Stanley. Remember, he was a workhouse boy, um, 
and if extremely lucky, he was about to find the most famous explorer in the world and then write about it in America's best-selling New York Herald. So naturally, he was incredibly worried about how he should greet him or how he should actually say that he greeted him um, if he managed to find him. Um, unfortunately, Stanley hadn't found the answer to this question when he came upon Dr Livingston on the banks of Lake Tanganyika. What he actually said remains a mystery. But if it was Livingston, Dr Livingston, I presume, why on earth did Stanley tear out the four pages of his field diary in which his very first account of the famous meeting must have been written? Though the doctor mentioned in letters the far less memorable words his servant Susie spoke on Stanley's arrival, he made no mention of the famous greeting, either in his diary or in any of the letters he sent home at this time, and he sent about 10 or 12. The celebrated question first appeared six months after the meeting, when on the 2nd of July 1872 news of it was published in the New York Herald, along with the famous greeting. It had taken Stanley a very long time to invent it. Uh, excellent. And, and despite the age difference between Stanley and Livingston, they, they seem to have clicked. Could you tell us a little bit about their relationship? Yes. I mean, I have to start a little bit earlier, because ever since his workhouse days, Stanley had longed for an ideal father figure. You know, these boys being taken away by other people and adopted, and him not actually having the same luck. He claimed later to have found such a person in New Orleans, but because he'd made this up, the desire had never left him. Um, I mean, he didn't think he had much hope, actually, when he landed, because Dr Kirk, the acting British consul in Zanzibar, um, who had served Livingston on the Zambezi as medical officer um, to his expedition, had told Stanley in Zanzibar that Livingston was vain, cantankerous, and likely to shove off the moment he heard that any explorer was approaching. So Stanley wasn't hopeful that he'd even speak to him, let alone become fond of him or be paternal in any way. But luckily for Stanley, the loss of Livingston's wife, Mary, to malaria on the Zambezi had had a softening effect on the doctor's character. Also, Livingston was in really dire need um, when Stanley arrived, having recently been robbed of most of his possessions. And so um, Kirk was completely wrong. Livingston was really delighted to be found. The two men soon developed a close bond despite Stanley's masquerade as an American. And this was partly because Livingston's son, Robert, had died in the American Civil War. So the unexpected arrival of a young American with supplies and friendly intentions moved Livingston deeply. In fact, Livingston soon wrote to friends that Stanley had acted as a son to him. And Stanley, when ill with fever, thought the doctor nursed him like a father. And those were his very words. Livingston's fondness for Stanley became clear when he explained to him all his latest theories about the Central African watershed. And this was a real privilege because Livingston, quite honestly, would have died rather than let Burton speak or Baker get their hands on the fruits of his indescribably hard-won geographical discoveries. The doctor told Stanley that if Africa's rivers could be explored and charted, they could become highways into the interior for European traders to sail along. This would enable Africans to sell their hardwoods, ivory and animal skins in exchange for the cloth and tools they wanted, rather than having to pay Arab traders with African slaves, their favoured currency. The Arab slaver would consequently be cut out of the market. These ideas remained with Stanley, and after Livingston's death would motivate his return to Africa to complete his mentor's geographical work and hobble the East African slave trade by opening the, cont the continent to external trade. 
I should actually possibly say that, that the, the, the Atlantic slave trade had been abolished throughout the British Empire in 1833 and dismantled by the Royal Navy by the 1870s. So the slave trade we're talking about is the Arab Swahili slave trade, which was responsible for exporting over a longer period than the Atlantic trade in excess of 10 million people to Egypt, Arabia, the Gulf and India. It's not often talked about much today, this trade. That's really interesting. I think it's something we'll probably delve into later on in the, the podcast. Um, obviously, he, you know, he tracks 700 miles to find Livingston. Um, and f- from all accounts, heading into the interior of Africa was almost a sort of certain de- death wish. Am I right in saying that Livingston got malaria 26 times on his travels to Africa? And I guess he was probably the lucky one. Um, but what what was it that made Africa... Exploration through Africa so dangerous during that time. Well, you're quite right. Livingston did get 26 um, um, bouts of, of of what he called fever, but was malaria, um, while he was um, crossing Africa from coast to coast along the Zambezi. Stanley was also very ill with malaria on his Livingston search journey, and both his his companions died from other tropical diseases. But really, the greatest danger he encountered was the war raging in the middle of what is now Tanzania between Mirambo, the African ruler of the Nyamwezi people, and the Arab slave traders in that district. The two sides were fighting for control of the slave routes. Stanley, who was racked with fever, was nearly captured and killed by Mirambo's men on two occasions. And I think I mentioned that slavers made tribes compliant by killing large numbers in order to break their will to resist before they actually started to take slaves. This meant that many Africans viewed all strangers, particularly Europeans, with deep suspicion. Between 1845 and 1880, a dozen explorers and missionaries were killed by Africans who understandably doubted their intentions. There were other problems. All African rivers, thanks to rapids, falls and sandbars, were a nightmare to navigate. In addition, as I've already mentioned, the Setsi fly killed beasts of burden and made wheeled transport impossible. Wild animals, an extraordinary variety of illnesses, ranging from flesh-eating ulcers to elephantiasis, were just a few of the causes of death that could overwhelm travellers. Wow, um, quite gruesome stuff. Uh, and, and, and after this expedition that you are talking about at the moment, Stanley quickly returned to Africa. Uh, to once and for all confirm the source of the Nile. Uh, this 7,000-mile t- uh, trip took the lives of 62 of around 200 men in the group. Um, why was Stanley, Stanley so willing to risk so much to discover the source of the Nile? Well, I suppose one needs to remember that this was like, you know, visiting the moon or something. It was one, it was the great, one of the greatest last surviving mysteries of the planet, was where the Nile rose. I mean, every, people have been trying since the days of the Greeks and Romans to find the source and had failed. Um, Speaker imagined that he found the source, and he might well have done, but he hadn't been able to prove it by tra- tracking it down and joining the known Nile. Um, and nor was he even able to prove that Lake Victoria um, had only that one outlet. So... When Stanley decided that he was going to disentangle the mysteries of the Niles and Congo's sources, he was really um, bidding high in the explorer stakes to to, to go to the very top of the tree. Um, But on one level, he also considered it a sacred mission to finish Livingstone's work. Um, 
He needed also to sort of redeem his deep sense of unworthiness dating back to his abandonment. So the idea of this particular grail um, in front of him was enough to make him totally determined to achieve this in order to feel that he deserved love and respect in his later life. Um, Stanley's feelings would fluctuate. Early in his journey, he wrote to a friend, I cannot say I have any melancholy, melancholy at the pro hopeless prospect ahead of me, but rather a careless indifference as to what fate may have in store for me. I say truly that I don't care whether I return or not. Yet at times there was a superhuman confidence about the man. He wrote, this poor body of mine has suffered terribly. It has been degraded, pained, wearied and sickened, and has well nigh sunk under the task imposed upon it. But this was but a small portion of myself, for my real self lay darkly encased and was ever too haughty and soaring for such miserable environments as the body that encumbered it daily. In fact, Stanley lost many more than the 62 people you mentioned. The final total was 117 out of 228 that he'd started with. He lost all three of his European colleagues and 114 out of 224 Africans from illness, starvation, drowning, African attacks and exhaustion. There were desertions too, but no more than 20. And in terms of Europe's involvement at that time, what was the sort of situation in Africa? Can you... Well, it's, it's, it's always, all these subjects are complicated. It started a while earlier, and the British occupied the Cape in 1795 during the war with revolutionary France, and then took it from the Dutch more permanently in 1806, when the war with Napoleonic France and the competition for the control of India made possession of the Cape essential. The British, though, thought of the Cape as a strategic asset and only took Natal 40 years later to contain a situation in which the Cape Boers were fighting the Khorza people who were advancing from the west. Although in the 16th century the Portuguese had established colonies on the Zambezi and inland from Loanda on the west coast in the 16th centuries, Arabs had arrived in, in Africa much earlier in the 7th century. It would not be till the 1880s and the Berlin Conference that the scramble for Africa truly began. First came international approval of Congo Free State and Britain's occupation of Egypt. And then in the 1890s, the bulk of the European acquisitions were made. Uganda, Tanganyika, Nyasaland, Rhodesia, French Congo, German Southwest Africa, Nigeria, Sudan, etc., etc. In the 1870s, when Stanley found Livingston and made his great trans-African journey, there was no new clamour for new colonies. Um, in fact, Palmerston turned them down. But the turning point came in 1878, when Leopold clandestinely employed Stanley to establish trading stations on the Congo. The rest would be history. Fascinating. And, and from a pure, pure exploration point of view, Stanley's achievements are unparalleled, as you've mentioned. Um, not only did he lead an expedition that traversed the continent east uh, to west, but he also then headed an expedition that uh, went the, in the opposite direction. Um, could we could we say perhaps that Stanley is the greatest African explorer, and, and if so, what is it that sets him apart? I think we can say it. Um, great explorers make great discoveries, and Stanley made more of these than any other explorer of Africa. It's not to say that other explorers didn't make important discoveries. John Hanning Speke was a greater explorer than Richard Burton because he found the primary source of the Nile, though Stanley had to prove that it was the true source later. 
Speke was braver than Burton and had greater powers of endurance. And these two essential explorer qualities were possessed in cartloads by David Livingstone and Stanley. But Stanley was more practical than Livingstone, which did leave, lift him above him and meant that he achieved a great deal more. Baker had these qualities too, but his one great discovery, which was Lake Albert, was handed to him on a plate by Speke. Livingstone's greatest achievement was to be the first European to cross sub-Saharan Africa from coast to coast for part of the way along the Zambezi, and then he went back to the centre again. He also first mapped the watershed of the Congo, though at the time he'd thought himself on the Upper Nile. Stanley, on his first trans-African journey, circumnavigated and mapped Lakes Victoria and Tanganyika, proving that Lake Victoria was the White Nile's primary source and that Lake Tanganyika was part of the Congo's river system and had nothing to do with the Nile. He also established that the Kagara River um, into um, Lake Victoria was the principal feeder of, of, of the lake itself and thus of the Nile. He then navigated the great Lualaba River, which Livingstone thought was the Upper Nile. And one can't blame him because it flows six or 700 miles due north um, you know, for, for, for that immense distance of, of 700 miles, for 1,800 miles from Niangui, the place where the doctor had left it. Stanley eventually traced it um, to its outflow in the Atlantic Ocean, proving conclusively that it was the Congo. During Stanley's Emin Pasha expedition, he pioneered a path through the Virgin Ituri forest to Lake Albert. Then he established the rainmaking role of the Ruanzori Mountains in feeding the Nile. No other explorer of Africa achieved anything to rival Stanley's extraordinary geographical achievements. Clearly, Stanley could have achieved nothing without his African porters, guides and soldiers. And he often acknowledged this, writing for publication the names of the 11 men who were with him in a small boat when he circumnavigated Lake Victoria, and others too as they shot the rapids on the Congo. He called the men who found Livingstone with him, his immortals, and named them all in How I Found Livingstone. He admitted during his Trans-Africa journey that he would not have travelled more than a few days' march without his 20 most loyal and hardy African assistants. But without his drive and impetus, they would never have set out on such enterprises, nor have known how to place on a map exactly where they'd been. They had no sextants, artificial horizons or chronometer watches to calculate precise positions scientifically. To move on to Stanley's reputation uh, in a bit more depth, Arguably, it's been most tainted uh, by his association with King Leopold II in the Congo, uh, and obviously many listeners will be aware of that through Comrade Tart of Darkness. Um, but as you suggest in your book, Stanley and Leopold had very differing views on the treatment of the Congolese, as well as them as, the use, uh, as, as for use as slaves within the region. Uh, could you elaborate on their relationship and whether you think it's fair to blame mm. hor such horrors on Stanley? Well, when Stanley returned to England after solving the mysteries of the Nile and the Congo, he tried very hard to get the British government to show some interest in the Congo, but he failed. Um, but after he'd failed, Leopold stepped up and showed great interest. Um, so Stanley, who believed at the time that Leopold's motives were philanthropic, as did all the rulers of Europe except Bismarck, Stanley agreed to work for him, founding trading stations for the king on the river. Inevitably, given his background, Stanley was overawed by Leopold at first. But very soon, he stood up to him, as his feisty letters to the monarch show very clearly. Livingstone's prescription for ending the slave trade had involved 
introducing legitimate trade, force out the slavers. Here was Stanley's big chance, a sacred task he called bringing international trade to the Congolese. Stanley did not use slave labour, as has been claimed. His Zanzibari workmen were individually contracted and paid partly in advance and partly on completion of their service. Money, at Stanley's insistence, had also been set aside by the king to pay for their return journey to Zanzibar by steamship, and that was going to cost a huge sum of money. Their task was to build a road to bypass the rapids on the Congo below Kinshasa and to launch steamships on the upper river, dragging them up the new road in parts. A Herculean undertaking achieved during the early 1880s before Stanley was sent home in 1884. Yet he is often accused of enabling the red rubber atrocities of the 1890s and for handing the Congo to the king to own personally. Of course, he'd left six years earlier than any of these things began to happen. Um, and in truth, when he was on the Congo, Stanley's treaties enraged Leopold because they did not take the chief's land. So Stanley was sidelined while other negotiators were employed to manufacture the land-grabbing treaties the king wanted. Nor can Stanley be blamed for the forced labour and mutilations inflicted on rubber collectors. I've already mentioned it was eight years before. Well, actually, I think I said six, but it was actually eight years before that he'd been there. Um, Conrad's period as a steamship captain on the Congo took place five years after Stanley had left. By then, John Dunlop had invented the rubber inner tube and the forced labour and barbarity um, started from that point onwards when Leopold was so eager to increase his take of rubber. The Congolese world of heart of darkness was not the same as Stanley's world. When news broke of the atrocities, Stanley wrote to the Times naming individual Belgian officers and some of the inhuman crimes they'd committed. He'd been told about them by officers who'd served under him when he'd been chief agent on the Congo. And Stanley, after these expeditions, ended up with a reputation as one of the sort of harshest explorers of his time. But you argued that, and as you said just earlier, that much of that came from the behaviour of others on the expeditions rather than his own. Um, and you sort of argue that, in fact, he was unusually humane towards Africans at that time. Um, do you think Do you think the the result of this has sort of tar tarnished his legacy? On the Emin Pasha expedition, which was his most testing and appalling journey, it was undoubtedly the behaviour of the members of the rear column that got the biggest publicity. He tried to suppress it to start with, that... Um, that, kept, that Major Bartolot, the, 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 the um, commanding officer of the rear column, who had been left behind in tropical Africa, um, went basically stir-cry crazy, crazy and committed all sorts of dreadful, dreadful acts. But when this got out, I mean, Stanley was blamed for having employed him and Jameson, his second-in-command, who'd, who'd done equally terrible things. He'd sketched a girl of eight... Um, who was about to be eaten, boiled and eaten, boiled alive and eaten by cannibals. Um, and he'd set this incident up. And this was, this, this eventually got out. Stanley tried to suppress all these things, but he was inevitably blamed for the fact that he had employed these people, but he'd employed them on the recommendation of some of the most senior officers in the British Army. Um, indeed, the commander-in-chief had recommended um, Bartolot, the, the, the commander of, um, of, the, of the rear column, so Stanley was often blamed for things which happened 
millions of miles, or not millions of miles, but certainly hundreds of miles away from where he actually was at any given moment. Africa's a huge place. And while he was trying to take ammunition and guns, etc., to give to Emin Pasha, who was Britain's last living colonial governor in Sudan after the Mahdi's troops had killed General Gordon, and he felt this was very important. While he was miles away in the advance column, the rear column was quietly going mad um, behind him, and that really wasn't his fault. But I think one also needs to think that if you're exploring a completely virgin country where people have literally um, only seen slave traders um, and bad things being done by intruders, you are going to have a terrible time. And nobody is going to sell food to you. And it's going to be the most testing and appalling experience of your life. And that was going through the Ituri forest for Stanley. Um, he, he, his men were constantly bombarded with poisoned arrows and so forth. Um, and, you know, you could either take it and continue to let that happen, or you fire back. And he fired back. And, as always, he made the great mistake of mentioning it, but there were other people who were inevitably going to mention it too, because he was with other European officers. Um, you can't con keep control of an expedition of about 800 people in a, in a country like Africa was at that particular time, in a continent like Africa at that time. Um, yes, and so linking to what you just mentioned, you make another point uh, about this incident that that is partly his own fault uh, for allowing and, and perhaps leading to his legacy uh, to be soured. Um, and you state that the, the legacy of, Stan of Stanley being a helpless, legitimate boy um, you know, was a deep, get left him with a deep sense of inferiority uh, where he mm. had to overcompensate. And so do you yeah. how do you think that's linked to this incident that you're just uh, about to refer to? Stanley was largely self-educated and not taken in the fact that since the abolition of slavery in England, Africans have become a special case in the English public's imagination. Indian rebels after the mutiny were blown from cannon's mouths, with few questions asked, amazingly. Tasmanian natives were shot or destroyed by alcohol, with no voices raised to defend them. American Indians were killed in thousands by American soldiers who became heroes, and then later herded into reservations. Black slaves had been treated abominably in the deep south when Stanley had lived there in the 1860s. Yet in England, Josiah Wedgwood's famous plate, bearing the image of a kneeling slave and with the words, am I not a man and a brother, around the border, had sold in many thousands and was still selling when Stanley first went to Africa for the first time. Nonconformist worshippers contributed money for missionaries to go to Africa and were appalled to read any descriptions of brutality towards um, future converts. Yet Stanley had been praised by his American newspaper editors for writing about bloody encounters between Union soldiers and Red Indians. So when Stanley wrote about shooting Africans in self-defence, he would be severely criticised in England. Almost every other explorer had killed numerous Africans in self-defence, but had never mentioned it. Only Stanley wrote straightforwardly on this subject, and then made it worse by exaggerating the number of African casualties, as he had been urged to do in the Indian Wars. General Gordon, later the martyr of Khartoum, was appalled by Stanley's disastrous honesty. Such things may be done, but not advertised. Gordon had often been obliged to kill members of the Bari tribe when attacked by them, very large numbers. The incidents that harmed Stanley's, the incidents that harmed Stanley's reputation most of all and created his reputation as a brute 
worse than all other explorers were those that occurred during his two visits to Bumbiri Island, near the western shore of Lake Victoria, in April 1875. During his circumnavigation of Lake Victoria, en route to Speke's Nile outflow, Stanley and the 11 Africans who travelled with him in a small boat visited Kabaka Muteza of Buganda in order to persuade him to admit missionaries to his kingdom. Later, during Stanley's voyage south, where he had to rejoin the majority of his men at the southern end of the lake, the first act took place of that two-part tragedy, which would dodge Stanley for the rest of his life. He and his crew of 11 had been unable to buy food for three days, and so were very hungry. So when the large island of Bumbiri came in view, they ran their boat up the beach, only to be surrounded by about 60 angry spearmen. Stanley offered cloth, but the islanders' chief took their oars. Wadi Sufeni, Stanley's coxswain, kept their captors talking, but feared death at any moment. So when the chief's attention wavered, the Zanzibaris seized the boat with the strength of absolute desperation and manhandled it into the lake, paddling with the bottom boards. As arrows fell around them, Stanley fired with his elephant gun, killing one man and wounding another. Disastrously for his reputation, he inflated the deaths to nine for journalistic effect. Stanley also overstated figures because his life had been threatened by these islanders and he was determined to give the impression that no one ever got the better of him. This inability to avoid making self-aggrandizing exaggerations to appease his sense of inferiority would dog him till he was 40 or so and was disastrous for his future reputation. He didn't just exaggerate casualties, but the size of his expeditions and the number of his fights with Africans. His claim that he fought 32 battles on the Congo and burned numerous towns was simply untrue, as his original field diary proves as was his assertion that he'd taken 356 people with him and not the 224 he actually had taken. The fewer the men, the greater his achievement. But Stanley's psychological need to be credited with taking the largest and best and most expensive exploring African expedition of all time trumped, trumped all else, including his common sense. This particular exaggeration led to claims that his approach to exploration was military in its scope and scale. Stanley's return to Bombieri en route to Lake Albert three months after his first visit was claimed by his critics to be his revenge on the islanders for capturing him. In fact, he'd done his utmost to avoid the island, but the poor condition of his crew, of his canoes, meant that crossing Lake Victoria at its stormy centre with all his men and their wives and children would have been foolhardy. The refusal of lakeside chiefs to permit Stanley to travel overland made the lake his only option. Yet a northward passage to Buganda through the calm channel between Bumbiri and the mainland kingdom of Antari, an ally of the islanders, would be dangerous too. Stanley sent a six-man delegation um, to Bumbiri to purchase food, a means of testing the water before attempting to negotiate safe passage in the strait. But the islanders killed the delegation's leader and fatally wounded four of his men. Stanley now believed a preemptive attack was the only way left to protect his expedition from attack by Antari on one side and the islanders in canoes on the other. When Stanley fired on the islanders from the lake, his life was not in immediate danger, and this convinced many that mitigating factors were irrelevant. It was indeed a terrible day. 33 islanders were killed and others injured. Whether the islanders would really have sunk the expedition's canoes is unknowable, but Stanley believed they would have done if he had not acted first. Back in England, having described his actions in letters to the New York Herald and the Daily Telegraph, he was badly advised by the Telegraph's editor 
and by his book publisher, who both told him to ignore his critics. So by the time he spoke in his own defence, a powerful combination of churchmen and humanitarians had already carried the day. Nobody cared that he'd lost 22 men when ambushed a few, days, a few months earlier. He told a friend that he always preferred paying tribute and making friends to fighting. But with tribes, in his own words, rivaling the Apache in ferocity and determination, fighting was the only option. This incident is always used to show that he cared nothing for black lives. Yet very often, on this terrifying journey down the Congo with its whitewater rapids and waterborne attacks, Stanley did his utmost to avoid conflict and preserve the lives of his Zanzibaris and their families. Um, towards the end of his journey, Stanley and, and his Zanzibari assistants were shooting the rapids below Kinshasa. They'd been starving upstream because the local Africans on the banks had refused to sell them food for the only type of cloth they still had left. Stanley might easily have been drowned, as happened to Frank Pocock, the last survivor of his white colleagues, along with Kalulu, a boy he'd rescued from slavery, and seven others. Though certain that his best chance of surviving was to take his Zanzibari captains in a single boat and leave the remaining 110 behind, Stanley wrote in his diary that he was not capable of it. Better to die as we have lived together and share fate even the most fearful. Shooting the rapids dug out capsized, but two men clung to a rock and survived. Our pity and love gushed strong towards them, wrote Stanley, but we could utter nothing. The roar of the falls mocked and overpowered the human voice. Close to journey's end, Stanley could have sailed home by the shortest route. Um, but he wrote to the editor of the Daily Telegraph insisting that his men's wages of 1,328 should be paid as soon as possible. And the government be shamed into sending a gunboat to take them back to Zanzibar. If they're left across Africa by their own endeavours, wrote Stanley, it would be considered by civilised people a thing you ought not to have done. Stanley underlined this statement. He waited two months for the ship and spent another six weeks with his companions on their voyage to Zanzibar. Many of his Zanzibaris enlisted with him three times, a couple of two or three, even four times, so the much-repeated claim that he was cruel to them is absurd. In fact, Stanley adored Africans. The African children in his camp, he wrote, the sight of these tender little beings following my camp into the wilderness and laughing in my face and hugging my knees just thrilled me. He considered rich black and richer bronze skin more beautiful than white and was repelled by the weird pallor of the Portuguese merchants at Boma near the Atlantic. Their skin had an unaccountable ghastliness. So Stanley was no racist. The moral conundrum faced by all previous explorers and by Stanley was whether he had the moral right to kill Africans in their own country. Stanley wrote, We went into the heart of Africa uninvited. Therein lies our fault. But it was not so grave that our lives, when threatened, should be forfeited. Today, many people argue that he should indeed have abandoned his journey rather than cause more deaths. But in the heyday of the Royal Geographical Society, when exploration was a national obsession, most of the public thought completely differently. That's a, Tim, that's a really powerful uh, depiction of Stanley and his, his character. Um, critics of your book, though, would suggest that it seeks to whitewash Stanley's reputation. What would you say to these people? Well, I say all Stanley's critics cherry-pick events and quotations to prove their point. Very rarely do any give a context or mention quotes that run counter to their condemnatory thesis, 
For instance, they will frequently quote a deplorable remark that Stanley made in his diary on his very first day in Africa about mixed-race people being cringing and cowardly, but then omit to mention that a few days later he wrote that he was um, prepared to admit any black man possessing any good qualities to my friendship, even to a brotherhood with myself. He'd also found himself employing mixed-race Zanzibaris, the kind of person who he'd been so deplorably rude about on his first day, and they would become his most loyal and most capable porters and assistants on all his major journeys. The praise he heaped on them led his European colleagues to refer to them as his dear pets, and indeed all his European colleagues always said that he, he always sided with the Africans rather than with them. A canard, much quoted by Stanley's critics, is Burton's remark, made post-Bumbiri to John Kirk, another jealous Stanley hater. Stanley shoots Africans like monkeys, Burton had written. The critics who quote this do not mention that Burton was an odious racist who often compared Africans with monkeys. Stanley genuinely liked Africans and was repaid um, by their loyalty to him and their, their con constantly re-enlisting um, um, re with him. Burton detested Stanley for proving that speak, not he, had found the Nile source. Unlike Stanley, who wrote that slavery is ab abhorrent to my very soul, Burton was unoffended by it and described the Royal Navy's flotilla tasked with stopping the export of slaves from East Africa as the sentimental squadron. He idolised the Arabs and despised Africans. Now, none of this context is ever given if you hear Stanley shoots monkeys, Africans like monkeys, as is very often quoted. Professor John Carey, reviewing my book in the Sunday Times, wrote, Anyone who, after reading this book, imagined they would have behaved better than Stanley if faced with the same dangers must have a vivid imagination. So thank you, Professor Carey, is all <laughs> I can say. When Stanley's supporters started to desert, he had to prevent this happening, since without the trade goods they carried, the rest of the expedition would not be able to buy food and would starve. For this reason, Stanley and all explorers took immense trouble to capture deserters and to punish them with a beating so that others would be discouraged from trying. Yet Stanley alone is blamed for employing corporal punishment. When attacked, he would indeed fire back, if possible, when his assailants, his assailants were too far away to make it necessary to shoot more. They attack in such numbers, he wrote, and so suddenly that our Sniders have to be handled with such nervous rapidity as will force them back before we are forced to death. For if we allow them to come within 40 yards, their spears are as fatal as bullets and their contemptible-looking arrows are deadly weapons. It's worth saying that even David Livingstone shot and killed several Africans working as slave traders on behalf of Portuguese masters. All explorers defended themselves but kept quiet. In the end, um, you know, one has to say that if you're there, and perhaps you shouldn't have been there, um, then you had to defend yourself. And that's really the, the end of it. No, no self-defence by Stanley, and there would have been none of his discoveries because he would have died long before. That's a really interesting point. And uh, moving to sort of a wider context, um, Stanley's involvement in, in, in the region and in Africa more generally um, reflected a sort of scramble for Africa, which culminated in the Berlin Conference in 1884. Um, like the Congo, historian, historians have argued that Western influence in these countries greatly stunted the development of these places, a problem that we sort of still potentially see today. Um, how far do you think you can agree with that critique of the situation in Africa? Well, I'm not an economic historian, 
But if the legacy of Western influence truly stunted the development of Africa's colonised countries post-independence, one would expect those African countries that had remained independent for longest to have developed more satisfactorily than colonised nations. In fact, Ethiopia and Liberia, both independent for longest, are two of the poorest, and in the case of Ethiopia, given past civil strife, famines and the present civil war, the most troubled countries in Africa. Congo has clearly had a terrible and tormented history, in large part thanks to King Leopold's exploitation and crimes. But looking at Uganda, Kenya and Botswana, it seems clear that ex-colonies can develop well. When I gave a talk about Stanley to Congolese asylum seekers living in the UK, many said that they wished Stanley had managed to get his way with the British government and persuade ministers to make their country a British protectorate or colony. They pointed to former British colonies as being far less dysfunctional than Congo. Despite Leopold's vast profits made from rubber collected um, with the use of forced labour, most other tropical sub-Saharan countries were never profitable and never made fortunes for European capitalists. The gold and diamonds of South Africa are the exception that proves the rule. They did create vast fortunes for men like Rhodes, Robinson and Beat, but further north such valuable commodities were found only in minute quantities during the 19th century. Britain's fault was to invest too little in colonies rather than turning them into money-making cash cows for the empire. Though palm oil in Nigeria was certainly profitable. Sir William McKinnon, who founded the British East Africa Company, made little, if any, profits and would have done far better to have invested in Britain. But he, like Livingston, his hero, had wanted to bring commerce and Christianity to Africa, as had his friend Stanley. The age that sent explorers, soldiers of fortune, prospectors and pioneers to Africa's remote frontiers also witnessed the arrival of many scores of missionaries. The motives of these new arrivals were mixed and not all bad. Lastly, the idea that wealth in Africa was waiting to be looted by adventurous newcomers takes no account of the poverty of pre-colonial Africa. Rhodes and those like him didn't steal from Africans and Boers. They formed a new kind of wealth that would not have come into existence without extraordinary efforts, ingenuity, investment, um, and their own clients' um, other money. Of course, far too little of the profits made on the round were ever returned to the people. And this, of course, rightly does suggest that, you know, that there was exploitation. And moving, moving on to sort of 2020, um, Stanley's name got thrown into the limelight, uh, largely around the discussions around um, statues, his in uh, Denby, and there were calls for that to be taken down, uh, which uh, inevitably didn't happen. But do you think, um, how do you think people like Stanley should be viewed today? And uh, do you think it's right to judge these individuals on the morals of today? Well, I don't think it is right to at all. Um, historical figures should only be judged by the standards of their time. And we judge too freely these days, implying that we possess the moral authority to do so. We may be remembered as the generation that finally enabled climate warming to wreck our planet. So people looking back on us may, may make worse strictures than we make about those behind, you know, earlier than us. Interestingly, despite a, a vigorous campaign, as you say, Stanley's statue wasn't taken down. I think the citizens of Denver voted four to one to retain it. Many of the most vociferous critics linking to what we've just said, the ver most yeah. vociferous critics of the British Empire seem to be driven, like you say, by this uh, extremely authoritative moral vision of history where you've got the clear distinction between evil imperial overlords and, um, you know, oppressed subjects. 
Um, but as you've sort of ex- touched upon today, the, the closer reading shows a much more complex picture. And so do you think Stanley can, is, is a useful person to study to, to reveal this complex picture? I, I, think, I think the idea that um, the imperial overlords are, um, are, all, are represented universally as bad and the oppressed subjects as good is, is perfectly true. I think that's what we do today. Yet all the writings of um, explorers of Africa challenge this narrative. For example, Livingstone described the sale of children into slavery by African chiefs as being widespread and more deplorable than the Arab slave trade. Speak described terrible acts of brutality by Kabaka Mateza of Buganda that had not been influenced by white destroyers of black culture since Speak was the first white man ever to have visited the country. Clearly, there had been brutal African leaders before the scramble for Africa, as the, Africans, as the explorers' writings show, and there would be brutal rulers after independence, as the careers of Mobutu, Mugabe and Amin would demonstrate. I mean, Europeans can't claim um, anything after the Third Reich in Europe um, disallows us for claiming that Europeans um, never committed vast acts of brutality. We know that only too many are committed, and we only have to think of Srebrenica in recent history. Um, All people everywhere um, are both good and bad. Um, But we are determined in our mission to to claim all all the bad for ourselves. it's worth remembering that Livingston had been appalled to find Africans in the heart of the continent selling other Africans to Arab slave traders for the sake of acquiring a few guns and trinkets. And this was, you know, during his first journey in 1851. Yes, undoubtedly, the oppressed subjects are represented as good, in denial of the fact that they too had sometimes been the oppressors of others. Before anthropologists explained the workings of African societies, the Victorians confused their own technological superiority with moral superiority. This led them to be culturally arrogant. Not all pre-colonial white visitors were so blinkered. Livingston in particular tried to understand tribal customs, though this made his desire to convert Africans more problematic. He knew that an African chief needed many wives in order to enjoy the the loyal support of many descendants. He knew that he also needed to give many feasts to bolster his authority, which could not be done without his having numerous wives. I absolutely agree about the complexity of the subject. Mm, Fascinating. Thank you very much for that. Um, uh, And regarding linking to that, regarding empire, what do you think as a historian is the main force driving this current interest in in revisionist history and post-colonial theories? And and would you be able to give an idea of where that originated for people? It starts really, really early, but clearly it gets into its full stride after we've left um, empire in the 60s, 70s, uh, in the 60s and 70s, really. Um, And strangely, Russia's defeat in the Cold War, more and more information about the crimes of Lenin and Stalin have not stopped Marxist-Leninist strictures about colonialism, still deeply influencing the way Western empires are seen today. Um, We may have won the war, but we've certainly lost the ideological battle. And today it's very, very strongly um, almost equating colonialism with, with, with slavery, which is totally absurd. Uh, really, yeah, I think a really important point to, to make, as you say, given the current sort of uh, what, you, what you see at the moment. And I was just wondering, based on that, how much sway, I mean, you've sort of alluded to it, but how much sway do you think such ideas hold with professional historians today? I'm sure they do. I mean, the history dons at other Oxford colleges who refused, have, have refused to teach 
Oriel students because the college's governing body wouldn't remove Rhodes's statue. That seems to furnish a remarkably good example. Chinwara Achebe, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature, um, was an extraordinarily gifted Nigerian who had been against um, white rule in Africa, but at the same time wrote in his last published book that there was something about the British administrator that exhibited remarkable skills for governing colonies and that it was so effective that there was such good order that there was incredibly little crime during that period. And the really tragic thing about independence, he said, was that, that although um, British justice was, was, was hard and unyielding during the colonial period, it could never be bought and it was always safe, as it were. Nobody, was, um, no, nobody could escape its consequences, be they rich or poor or, or powerful. And he was saying that that was the big difference, that you, you were so easily, you were so easily, this is 2013, which he's writing in, you were so easily abducted um, in modern Nigeria, whereas this would have been completely impossible before. Um, I think the powerful PR woke consensus in academe does punish dissent by exclusion you know, cancel culture and all that. When Nigel Bigger, Professor Nigel Bigger, began his study of colonialism several years ago to try to determine whether there were any redeeming features, his Oxford colleagues signed petitions against him and his enterprise, <laughs> and his whole enterprise, rather than confront him in person, which seems so extraordinary, it struck him as amazing. When a historian friend of mine read my Stanley in proof, he confused me by saying how brave I was. <laughs> I didn't feel at all brave. I'd merely tried to present a narrative chiming with the facts I'd revealed mm. after I'd read an immense trove of previously unstudied um, Stanley papers. And it's no coincidence that Professor James Newman, the only other scholar to have studied them and to have published a substantial book, produced a significantly more sympathetic account of Stanley's life than those written in the 1990s. Wow, uh, really, yeah, really interesting point there. Thank you, Tim. And, and I suppose just to wrap things up on this then, just as the in the 20th century, you know, notions of Whig history became challenged, um, do you think that, that Stanley's life could be used as an example to counter some of the cruder readings of history that you've just cited? God, I don't know, really. Um, I, I fear that there will be further attacks on Stanley using the time-honoured method of selective um, quotation and inadequate context. So I'm not sure that it would really be practical. The great difficulty of of, of countering attacks on Stanley is that it has it cannot be done just in a simple way. You know, it's it's a paragraph or two to rebut four lines, and that's the problem. Mm. Um, well, perhaps you've put your finger on the the heart of a lot of the mm. issues around defending figures like Stanley today. Um, and I'd just like to say. On behalf of Hugo and I, Tim, thank you so much for your um, time today and all your you know, expert insight into Stanley's character. It's really been a pleasure to have you. And we'd just like to tell our listeners, please go and check out Tim's books. He's written, obviously, one you know, award-winning book on Stanley. He's written books on, a book on Livingston, uh, Other Explorers of the Nile, and Baden-Powell, just to name a few. So please, yes, do, do go and check out some of his fantastic works.